Welcome to Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. I am your host, Lori McGraw. I have spent the past 30 years in leadership, and over the years, I've come to learn one thing. Women need women, and not just any women, but inspiring women. Tune in every week to hear from women at the pinnacle of their careers and from others who are just starting out. Episodes can be found at inspiringwomen.show or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will be inspired. Today on Inspiring Women, we're speaking with Stacey Vanek-Smith, and I am so excited to be speaking with Stacey today. She is the co-host from the of The Indicator from Planet Money. She's a correspondent to Planet Money. Um, she has been reporting on business and economics for about 15 years. Before she came to NPR, she worked for Marketplace, and she has traveled around the world in doing her reporting. But the reason I am so excited about speaking with Stacey is because because she is the author of an exceptional new book. It's called Machiavelli for Women, Defend Your Worth, Grow Your Ambition, and Win the Workplace. Stacy, thank you for being on Inspiring Women. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here. Well, this is going to be great. So, uh, you know, as I said, as we were just getting oriented here, I love this book. I devoured this book. It's just exceptional. And I really want to talk about it. But before we just like get into that, we always start inspiring women with a little bit about you. So what are you doing right now? What is your day-to-day professional career look like? Your work at NPR, things like that. Yes. So well, first of all, thank you so much for, it means so much to me that the book spoke to you. Um, thank you very much. Uh, And my day job now, I'm the host of a podcast called The Indicator from Planet Money, which covers business and economics. Um, I've been covering business and economics for about 15 years, which is kind of amazing um, to say those words, but it's true. And my day looks, so it used to be quite different. Our office is in Midtown Manhattan, right by Bryant Park, by Times Square, you know, very fast paced, lots of people, lots of lights and cars and I mean, I right now am (laughs) in my pajama bottoms and a business appropriate top uh, because I am still working out of my apartment and will be for the foreseeable future. So I broadcast out of my closet. I converted my broom closet into a little tiny recording studio. And yeah, I, I haven't even left my apartment yet today. So (laughs) that is what my life looks like now. That is hysterical. Stacey, you know, one of the things I will have to say that just, you know, again, we'll get into the to the book um, a bit, but I feel like I got to know you a bit in terms of how you approach work. And, you know, you really did share a lot about your own personal career and choices that you've made. And so we all, you know, you get to see a bit about that. So it'll be fun to see how what fashion choices of the future begin to look like when we do all get out of, you know, these uh, work environments that are just behind cameras and things like that. But 15 years as a reporter, a correspondent, an expert in business and economics, you've traveled the world chasing stories and getting into sort of the depths of um, business. Give us a little bit about that career history. You know, how did you start out? And, you know, now you are quite well known in the world of podcast and as an in-depth reporter as it relates to economics and business issues. Well, 
Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's interesting. I, I mean, I absolutely, I absolutely, absolutely love my job. Sometimes I can't believe how lucky I got because I really didn't know what I was doing at all for a long time. So I grew up in Idaho. Uh, my dad's a doctor actually, which I felt like you might appreciate. We also worked on a, a cattle ranch. My parents owned a cattle ranch. So I would do a lot of work on the cattle ranch and I didn't know quite what I wanted to do. I thought maybe I wanted to be a writer but I wasn't sure how to get anywhere. Um, th- like Idaho felt, I think it's a little different now. I think Idaho, it, Boise's grown a lot. Boise is where I grew up. Um, but at the time it felt very isolated and the idea of leaving felt a little bit daunting. It felt hard, but I, I studied really, really, really hard and went to college and college, I, I majored in literature and I thought I wanted to be a professor, like a college professor. And I was in fact on a PhD track, a literature PhD track. And I was to earn extra money. I was doing some copy editing for like a tourism magazine. And um, one of the reporters dropped out. And so I did like a profile of this park, this tourist destination. And it was all I could think about for like a week. And I would wake up um, thinking about it. So excited. I interviewed, there was like a guy who trimmed the trees and there was a beekeeper and the guy who planted the flowers and like the park had this history. And I just, it was all I could think about and all I wanted to do. And I was like, wait a minute, why? And, and meanwhile, like I was just not excited about writing my uh, dissertation. I was just like, oh, I don't know. Like I, and I was like, wait a minute, why am I so excited about the thing that I'm supposed to be doing for money? And so unexcited about the thing that I'm supposed to be getting the money for. And so that's when I realized that journalism was actually the thing that made me, that was my happy place. And it, it still really is. Um, I, I came back to Idaho uh, cause it was a, quite a reset for me. So like, I did get my master's degree, but I didn't, I didn't go on to my PhD. So I went back to Idaho, moved back in with my parents, started working for the Idaho Statesman and this publication called Idaho weddings. Um, and just started applying to every journalism job I could think of, but I couldn't, I didn't know how to apply for jobs. Like I didn't know that you couldn't just send an application in, you know, when, when there was a job posting, I didn't know you had to call people and but then you started to pursue it. And again, I, I, I say this from, you know, just sort of tracking through both what you wrote about yourself in the book and different things. You seem to really focus in on pursuing a passion for journalism, also getting into a space that was fairly competitive and having to stand out and get that next assignment. So you started to do that, rise, rose up in, in the ranks, moved to New York. How did the, where did the big break happen, you know, and get you, I think, I think the big break brought you to New York. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Tell us, tell us what the big break or what you thought that big break might've been for you. Well, I applied to journalism school actually. Um, cause I just wasn't getting the job. So I applied to journalism school. I got accepted to Col- Columbia's program in New York. Um, and I discovered radio and I would say my big break came from marketplace, uh, the public radio station. And I got a job on the graveyard shift as a production assistant and, uh, Kai Rizdahl, who is now the host of marketplace was uh, the host of the morning show at the time. And, I I had never covered business before. I was not interested in business or economics at all. It seemed like very dreary and kind of basic to me, money and just, 
I don't know. I just sort of thought of CNBC and stock tickers and I had zero interest in it. I wanted to be an arts reporter, but it was a job and I needed a job. And so I started, uh, be, I was a producer on Marketplace in the middle of the night for, for years, for, for, well, for three years. Okay. And then you discover that you're pretty good at it and you started doing more and more of these stories. So then I want to sort of like dive into this book. Okay. Because this book, Machiavelli for Women, Defend Your Worth, Grow Your Ambition and Win the Workplace. This is a Lori McGraw's review, business book for women, a playbook with a very, very unlikely model hero um, for this. So, so <laughs> before we even talk about Machiavelli, tell tell us about like women. When did the sort of like the you know keen interest and understanding of this landscape for women in business in economics start to really dawn on you? Has it always been there and then just emerged because you were studying economics and business and you're reporting, or has this um, was something that just became oh, like I have to do this? you know, because of what I'm seeing uh, um, while I'm doing my work. It definitely wasn't an interest early on. I mean, if if anything, I think I thought like, well, if you work hard enough, you'll succeed. Um, That was very much how I was raised. And I, I think it was a combination that my interest in the topic was a combination of my own experiences and just observations because, you know, in after like a decade, you start to see the arc of people's careers. You start to see certain people get opportunities, other people not get opportunities. You experience things yourself. You get a little experience under your belt. And then also as an economics reporter, there were certain stories that I would just do over and over and over again uh, as happened. One of them is the pay gap. This would I would probably get a pay gap assignment every year or two. Um, and I remember I was talking to this economist, Dr. Francine Blau. She does a lot of amazing research about it. And she, she made this offhand remark. She was like, well, you know, the gender pay gap hasn't moved in like 20 years. And I was like, what? 20 years? And she was like, well, I mean, it really hasn't moved in 10, but it basically hasn't moved in 20. And the pay gap is women make 80 cents on the dollar compared to men. Uh, for Black women, it's 63 cents on the dollar. For Latina women, it is 55 cents on the dollar. I mean, those numbers are shocking, right? 55 cents on the dollar. It's, um, it's shocking. And I just blew my mind because I had covered the economy for a decade at that point. And I'd seen so much transformation. I mean, Silicon Valley and like Google and Amazon, these amazing companies, the whole startup culture. I just seen revolution after revolution in our economy, more and more women going to college and law school and, you know, more traditionally disadvantaged workers breaking into new fields and getting degrees. And it was not translating into money. And then Shortly after that, I did a story about CEOs and 80% of CEOs are male and 90% of CEOs are white. And the numbers have gotten worse. They've gotten worse. And I just, I was like, I don't understand this. It's like, you're putting all this different stuff into a machine and you're getting the same thing out the other side. You know, I was like, I don't understand how all this change is happening and salaries aren't moving. The promotion gap isn't moving. CEOs like the share of CEOs who are women or people of color aren't moving. Uh, and it just, it, it, it was sort of rattling around in my head. And I, I started talking to my editor, Karen Marcus at uh, Simon and Schuster about it. And she was, and I was just like, you know, there's this stuckness that really interested me that drew me in. 
And I was like, you know, I, I don't know what the problem is. And I think women are getting weird messages about how to move forward. There's so much weird advice for women, you know, there, and, and there's nothing that's very comfortable, like the girl boss, like that doesn't sit well with a lot of people. It doesn't sit well with me. I have to say a lot of the kind of like, you go girl, you go get yours. Like that doesn't work. And it's also kind of, it's not really my style. Well, the pre- the premise, the premise that you laid out. And one of the things that really spoke to me now, just over my time, you know, I really enjoy business books. I probably read over 300 of them in the past couple years. What I liked, in, and I've read many um, books for women about women empowerment and women in the workplace and things like that. What I particularly liked um, about how you laid out um, things in this book is you took all of those things that just don't add up. We're celebrating women. It's, it is, you know, aren't women having a moment right now? We have all these wonderful stories about women breaking through um, various ceilings and the like, but the numbers don't add up. The, you know, the studies that you're talking about, one study that spoke to me was the 2018 McKinsey report on women in the workplace, which was, you know, the same thing as you're saying, basically fantastic amounts of attention on the problem and 10 years, no progress, zero, zip. And the pandemic has made things worse. So you've got this nice um, spotlight on, let's look at this like a math problem and let's solve it as a problem in, and strategies for how to, do, how to do that. So to me, that approach was unique um, and quite relatable in terms of being able to take actions with some of the advice. But that all said, Machiavelli. Okay. So, so, so in terms of all the heroes that you could, um, uh, choose, that one was uh, just an interesting choice. And, you know, uh, over 500 years ago in Italian, you know, Italian Renaissance time, just someone who, you know, we think of Machiavelli, we think of, you know, the, the ends justify the means, cunning, yeah. deceit, manipulative, and you noted that he never actually said that. So first of all, where did he come from in how to solve this problem? <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, this is the question everyone asks. It's like, are you kidding me? Machiavelli (laughs) is like the worst possible champion for women that you could have chosen. Um, (laughs) And and I hear that. Um, I I do respectfully disagree. So the, the idea actually came from my editor. So I was presenting all this data to her and I was like, you know, I feel like there's not anything that's like feels really deeply researched and that that would speak to me about what I can do with the situation. And she was like, you know, it's almost like women need Machiavelli. And something in my brain just like lit up and I bought a copy of the Prince and I read it from cover to cover in a copy shop. It's it's short. It's only like 50 pages. Um, And I was sold on this guy um, and this book. So I'd read Machiavelli in college. I'd read The Prince in college and I hated it. I thought it was so boring and like not about anything. I was like, I'm not interested in power or controlling people or killing anybody. Um, But when I reread it, I realized that that really wasn't what the book was about at all. And in fact, what's so magical about Machiavelli and what's so controversial about him, I think it's the same thing, which is that Machiavelli just removes emotion and morality. He looks at everything kind of like a chessboard. It's like, okay, you want to get here? What are the obstacles in your way? How do you get around them? 
And for me, it really felt like a revelation because I think I had so much emotion wrapped up in both the, the data about discrimination and exclusion, but also my own experiences and somehow like freeing up all that energy by removing emotion and just looking at it as a strategy. It's like, okay, um, at my workplace, women tend to get paid about 15% less than men. So I know there's at least 15% more on the table. How do I get it? Instead of, as I had been spending a lot of time and energy being upset at how unjust it was, which it is. And that emotion, I, I, I would say, in my opinion, is correct. But it also like pulled a lot of my energy away. And I just realized that that was this, that was the Machiavelli sort of main, the heart of his work was to just look at the situation. And instead of staying in that place, like, why is the situation like this? Just working with it. Like, okay, this is the situation we are in uh, an economy that is amazing and powerful and full of possibility, but also has a lot of systemic issues. You're working with racism and sexism and, and a lot of it's unconscious bias. Like it's not on purpose. It's hard to address it. So, okay, this is the situation. How do we work with this? How do I get where I want to go in this situation? And I loved that clarity. I thought it was really special. And I thought it was, it made Machiavelli a really powerful guide through the, a really thorny, foggy issue. And I also sort of liked the counterintuitiveness of it, I have to admit. <laughs> well, there is, there is, I mean, there's a humor in it and you have humor throughout this entire book. And, you know, you tell a lot of stories about yourself and how you've handled certain, certain situations. Okay, here's a way to do it, but don't do that because that's what I did. That was a terrible choice. I oh, mean, yeah. Like when I drank too much with this woman, I really wanted to be my mentor. Yeah, five oh. glasses of wine is not, and crying five in front of your mentor, not, not, don't do that. Oh, that was, don't do it. Yeah. It was, I don't remember how I got home. I mean, I did get home, but I still like, she's a lovely person. She's, she works at NPR. She's never said a thing about it, but I still, I still <laughs> she, feel weird. She might now, she might now. So let's get it. Let's, let's get into some of the some of the topics, because, again, one of the things that it, you, you separate the systemic issues that cause some of these problems that put women in a box. You're not dealing with those. Those are terrible. Those are outrageous. Those need to be solved. This is a playbook for dealing with reality so that women can advance, take, keep uh, power, grow their ambition, all those things. So let's just start with, you know, a couple of the ones that because they're the types of topics that I talk about with women all the time on inspiring women. How about confidence? Okay, in terms of the need to have confidence, what to do when you're in a position where you might not have confidence, advice you give, advice you, what did you lay out there? What did Machiavelli say about that? Confidence is fascinating to me because it's like, it feels like this elusive thing, like coolness. You know what I mean? Like I spent so much of junior high wanting to be cool and I, I was not, I didn't work, <laughs> but what frustrated me about coolness and also confidence is like, you know, it's powerful, you know, all kinds of good things come to people who have that quality, but it's really hard to just, you want to have that quality, but it's hard to like make it happen. And in fact, sometimes in certain ways, it feels like the harder you try, uh, the worse it gets, the harder you try to be cool, the less cool you actually are. Um, and confidence felt that way. I mean, 
the studies, Dr. Cameron Anderson at UC Berkeley has done some really fascinating studies and also the Confidence Code um, by Katie Kay and Claire Shipman has some just fascinating research. And some of it's just mind blowing. Like confidence just has such a powerful effect on your happiness, how far you get your salary, like almost every area of your life. And it makes sense, right? Confidence is what you think you deserve, what you ask for, what you push for, what you dare to dream for. It's so powerful. But if you're not confident, what do you do? And, you know, it's not like people don't want to be confident, but especially as women, I think we often get a lot of very destructive messaging. You know, we're not necessarily raised to be confident or have swagger. Like the messaging we often get from culture is that like, you should be modest and self-deprecating and apologize and be supportive and behind the scenes and all these messages, which are changing, but they're still there. Um, And so I think I think that the issue of like how to practically deal instead of just like be more confident, it's like, okay, well, how does that work? But there's research, there are studies, there are ways, there are ways forward. Um, And one of my favorites uh, was just this idea of, of action, right? Confident people act. When you're insecure, you waffle, you know, you're weighing things, you're not sure, So one of the ways to fake confidence, and by the way, Dr. Cameron Anderson at at Berkeley found that like fake confidence, it's not as effective as real confidence, but it's better than nothing. So you can kind of fake it. Uh, So just take action, you know, um, speak up in the meeting, ask for things, fake it till you make it when it comes to confidence. Um, And when in doubt, act. Machiavelli was huge, huge, huge on this. He thought it was very dangerous to not make decisions. Um, and he thought, you know, inaction often seems safer than action, but he, he cautioned that it wasn't. You also go into, and, and so like a couple more that I want to hone in on, um, respect and support. And you talk also about sort of, you know, the hot box that women get into of sort of being caught between two stereotypes of, you know, what women are as it relates to a, p- a specific concept. Can you give more on some of those topics? Yeah. So the hot box was a baseball term that I got from my days in T-ball. And basically it means that it's when a a runner, you hit the ball and you're between two bases. So you run from first base to second base, let's say, and the first baseman throws the ball to the second baseman, but you're not on second base. So you're not out. So you run, turn to run back to first base, but then the second baseman just throws the ball to the first baseman. And then you turn around to run back to second base. And that's, you know, you're basically trapped in an impossible situation, running yourself ragged. And women find themselves in this all the time. And this research, I think, when I read it, was such an enormous relief and also probably the most upsetting research that I read. It was a relief because it I felt like it explained so much. And I was like, oh, yes. And then I read the research and I was like, this is awful. Um, but but the center of it, it's something that's off, that researchers often call the double bind. And what it is, is it has to do with our unconscious sort of expectations of of archetypes and how we respond to things on a very visceral gut level. So when we think of women, the the feminine, right, what we want to see in women, what we expect to see in women, it's things like compassion, nurturing, self-deprecating, behind the scenes, kind, supporting others, not asking for much for yourself, humble, I mean, those are, those are very beautiful qualities, but you know, they're not qualities you want in like 
a trauma surgeon, you know what I mean? Um, or a race car driver. Or a manager or a vice president or exactly. Uh, and the qualities we want to see in leaders, that's things like don't care too much what people think, outspoken, assertive, honest, um, asking for things. And so what happens is women get caught in this, this hot box situation where if they display a lot of feminine qualities at work, tr traditionally feminine qualities, um, they will be really loved, beloved. They will be well-liked. She's so nice. She's so wonderful. We love her. And they will never get promoted. They will never get a leadership position. But if women display a lot of leadership qualities, they're outspoken, they're assertive, they ask for things, they don't care too much what other people think, they might get some promotions, but people really won't like them. You see this in, in female politicians a lot of times. There's almost like sort of an outsized emotional reaction to this quality from women. And I don't think it's it's conscious or intentional at all, but it's, it's like, whoa, she's not acting the way she's supposed to. And so women might get promoted a little bit, but they, they can't quite get those top jobs because people don't like them. And you have to be kind of liked to get those top jobs. And, you know, with men, there's just a much wider berth that they, they have. I mean, you know, if you look at the CEO, the iconic CEOs, there's like, you know, the explosive genius and there's sort of the affable jock and there's the sort of the head in the clouds, really nerdy guy. And, and those are all fine. But when it comes to women, like the, those tropes don't exist. We don't have that same flexibility. We're sort of trapped. You know, there's right. this line you have to walk and it's suffocating. For women of color, it gets worse. It's even worse. It's a much finer th needle to thread. And what I, again, just, you know, not, not just sort of going on about what I like so much about this book, it's like you describe the problem, recognize this problem, you're in the hot box, and here's how to get out of it. Most important, here's the way forward um, to, to not be in this situation. Okay, last, last thing, because, you know, one thing women talk about all the time is negotiation. How do I know what I'm worth? How do I negotiate for what's most important to me? People know that it's important to do. It's something women struggle with the most. What did, what did you, what do you advise there? Yes. First of all, negotiation is very hard for women because there's often backlash. So I feel like women beat themselves up. I know I definitely did for not negotiating enough. And it's true. Statistically, women negotiate about a fifth as often as men. But I think the reason for that is actually sort of Machiavellian because women know and perceive that there's often a downside to negotiating. When you are a woman and you ask for more, it often leaves a bad taste in people's mouths. There can be backlash. Even if you get your raise, people will think of you as like grabby or like kind of selfish. And that could have reverberations later on in your career. So you are in a bind. I think recognizing that giving yourself a pass. If, if you have a hard time negotiating or you haven't negotiated, there are very, very good reasons for that. And it's not you. <laughs> it is not you. It's the system. Uh, so how do you get around it? Um, the way that I propose is sort of a better together solution, which is to avoid any kind of an antagonistic standoffy situation if possible. And because women don't tend to do well in those situations, people don't tend to respond well to women when they take that approach with men, it can work, but, but not usually with women. So what I advise is to sort of paint a picture of a future together 
to emphasize collaboration, to say like, listen, I'm so excited to be at this company. I am so inspired to be here. I'm so excited that this company is developing this project. I really want to be a part of that project. I see a path to myself leading this team. Um, I'm really excited to get there. Um, I know that the the salary range for the job that I'm in right now tends to be between 60 and $80,000. I'm right now getting 58,000. I, I know when I started, that might've been appropriate, but I think the level of work I'm doing, I'm working 20%, you know, I've, I've been 20% more productive than last year. Uh, I've really been getting wonderful feedback from my team and from clients. I think a more appropriate salary for me now is about $80,000 at the top of that salary range. And, you know, I'm so excited to be here, but it's very important to me to feel like, I am valued by this company as, as much as I value being here. Um, so I, I, I think a, a salary of $80,000 is more appropriate right now. What do you think? And so you're still making an ask, but you are telling a story, not of you guys are paying Ralph $80,000 and me $60,000 and Ralph does not work as hard and he's not as productive and I'm more productive and you owe me to like, here's the future that we can achieve together. Here's what you can give to me. Here's what I can give to you. Here's what I need from you to be happy. Yeah. And Stacy, you just handled that with such a practical approach and maybe because of your economics and business reporting and in-depth research, just laying out how to even go about doing that, which I think many women do not even know those basics in terms of how to find the information and then different tactics of how to handle the, this might happen to you situations. I just thought it was terrific. You know, Stacy, there's so many different aspects of what you brought out in this book that I think are just excellent. And it's just, uh, as I said, it is just a terrific, terrific book. I really appreciate it. I'd already told you that it's going to be my daughter's Christmas gift. Oh. Um, absolutely. As we close out on, on Inspiring Women, any last sort of closing advice or pearls that you just felt were, you know, the, the things that you really want to convey before we close out today? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that keeps coming into my head is that we are in a moment right now. I think there's huge opportunity I mean, it, workers have more power right now than I think they ever have in my whole career. And I think there's just an, and, and also there's a lot of flexibility available because of so many working from home situations and employers are starting to be more flexible. That is something that's kept so many women out of the workforce or on the edges of the workforce. And I think the fact of those two things coming together is so special. I think this is such an amazing moment for for every, for all workers, but especially for women to figure out what you would need to get where you want to go and to be happy at work and to ask for it and really likely to get it right now. Um, so I, I think this is a special moment, uh, as cheesy as that might sound, but it, it is sort of a powerful convergence of forces that I think can really be harnessed to, to get a lot of women ahead and get more money in women's pockets and, and to help workers sort of move past a lot of these barriers that let's face it, like have been around for just like way too long now. Um, and I really think this, this could be a powerful moment. I'm in a certain way excited to see how things unfold. 
Well, I am too. And I do believe it's a powerful moment. And I think that this book, Machiavelli for Women by Stacey Vanek-Smith is a great playbook to help people achieve that. Stacey, I really appreciate this conversation today. Thank you for being on Inspiring Women. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.